Uh, do we have any track and field athletes in here? Will you raise your hand? Okay, all right. Let's, let's say this. If you have ever in the past been a track and field athlete, still not what I'm looking for. Okay, if you've ever watched track and field <laughs> or run ever in your life. Okay, look at this. We got a track meet going on in here. Uh, so I was in uh, junior high, and I had joined the Foothills Summer Track League here in the area here. And uh, we're, we're the Foothills track team, and I will never forget showing up at this practice, and there were many different ages who got to be part of this. My younger sister, she's five years younger, she was part of it as well. Well, the coach was a coach of track and field over at Mullen High School, and he stood up in front of us one day, and he said... I am going to build a relay team this season that is going to win the state meet at the end of the season. And, and the relay team he was referring to was the 4 by 800 okay? Which I also call the 4 by suffering because to run the 800, there is no relaxed pace to it. It's just, it's just how badly can I punish my lungs is really the mindset you got to run that race with. So the 4 by 800 and I remember there were a group of us there, and he was standing there, and I could see it in his eyes. He was looking for the four people with the most athletic prowess, with a champion's mindset, who were going to bring home the gold at the end of the season. So I saw him looking out across all of us, and, and you know, I'm thinking, it, it's me, obviously. And he picked this guy, Tim. Tim was one of his track athletes at Mullen High School. He was a few years older than all of us. And Tim was incredible. I, I believe he ended up winning state in the mile run. He was amazing. So he picked Tim. And then he called on this guy that was about my age, Brent. And Brent was, he was amazing as well at running. And then this kid younger than me, Josh. He picked Josh and, and he needed one more. And, and I just thought, I mean, it's a no-brainer. <laughs> It's me. I mean, we've all agreed on this before. Look, look at me. <laughs> Legs of a gazelle. Body of a cheetah. Lungs and heart of a racehorse. In fact, my nickname on that team was White Lightning. I was White Lightning. Well, they didn't call me that. I called me that, and I was just hoping it would, it would stick. And so far, no luck. I'm still trying, but... <clears throat> Well, I think that he realized he really only had three, three athletes who could really do anything. And I just happened to be the next one that he made eye contact with. And he's like, all right, Nathan, over here. And I'm thinking, all right, I wonder if he's going to have me start, like if I'm the first leg of this thing or if I'm the anchor, you know, br just when we fall behind, just bring us back. And he said, Nathan, you're going to run second. And I was like, I know what second is. No offense to anybody who's ever run second in a relay team. It is, if you're second, they're trying to minimize the damage that you do to the team, all right? And sure enough, that's what happened. There were, there were, re, there were meets where um, Tim would build this huge lead, and then it, the mindset for Nathan was just, just make it around the track twice. Just make it. And then the two who came behind me, they could catch us up or, or regain the lead or whatever it was. Well, after he picked that team, he said, okay, there is one thing that we have to work on. And I'm thinking the, the running and getting faster and stuff like that. He said, it's the handoff. It's the handing off of the baton. This is crucial. And Olympic medals have been lost over dropping the baton. 
It doesn't matter how big a lead you have. You drop the baton and it is over. You're done, disqualified. So they said, Nathan, have you, do, you, do you have an experience with, with the baton handoff? And I said, yeah. And they were like, it's like, guys, white lightning, come on. And, uh, but by yeah, I mean I'd seen it done on the Olympics and I thought I kind of looked the same when I did it. So anyhow, we're at this practice and Tim is coming down the straightaway and you've, you've seen it enough times to where there's a baton passing zone and you're supposed to reach back as you begin running and they're going to just plant the baton in your hand, you take it and go. So that was in my mind, and I freaked out. Tim is, like, coming down the straightaway. And instead of doing this, I, he's coming in it, way faster than I expected. I just went like this. <laughs> like, right here. Just throw it. Um, he ran into me. We fell down. We eventually got it right. Well, now it was my turn to practice the handing off. So Josh was behind me. And I'm coming down the straightaway, and Josh starts running. I planted it right there in his hand. I mean, I hit him in the hand, and he can't, he can't grab it. And we, we were getting to the end of the baton passing zone, because you got to pass it in a certain space. And I got so frustrated that I just jammed the baton at his hand, and he actually fell down crying, because I, I might have broken his finger, actually. <laughs> and I just went, guys, listen, if White Lightning is going to bring home the title, we got to get this handoff right. And he said, no, Nathan, you need to get the handoff right. And the coach, he, he looked at all of us and he said, we have to get the handoff right. Because if you don't get the handoff right, it just doesn't really matter what else you get right. And as I thought about that, and I thought about the church worldwide, the history of the church, do you know why the church has survived? It's because God has empowered the church, generations of followers of Jesus, to get that handoff right. They are passing faith. They are passing the love of Jesus on to the next generation over and over and over. And as I thought about all that, it, it actually made me think about West Bowles, this church, because this is a church that as we talk about who we are, I cannot help but look around and go, oh my goodness, part of who God has woven into the fabric of this place, you know what he's wired into us? is this multi-generational presence. There are all kinds of generations represented here, and we talked about it this last fall. But truth be told, this is something that not only the church worldwide has to get right, but specifically we are positioned, and we have an opportunity to get right. In fact, I would stand up here and from personal experience, I'd say, honestly, my faith is due to those who in generations before me have taken the time and have spent the time to pass off and to hand off what the love of Jesus looks like for me. And it's my hope that we would continue, we would turn to the next generation and get that handoff correct. Now that's my hope, but I want to show you something in scripture because I believe there is no better picture of what that handoff needs to look like than what happened at the very foot of the cross. We're going to be in John, if you'll turn with me, or turn in your apps to John chapter 19, if you have your Bibles. Otherwise, it'll be up on the screens on the side here. But John chapter 19, I want to look at three verses this morning. And there are three verses who say so, so much for how we make that handoff as a church. John 
chapter 19, it's really, I think what struck me is who is standing at the foot of the cross. John chapter 19, verse 25 says this, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. And in just that half of a verse, I, I could not help thinking about a conversation that Mary would have had as she stood there and watched Jesus dying on the cross. I could not help thinking of this conversation that Mary had decades before this moment. And it was a conversation with a man decades older than her. We read about it in the book of Luke, chapter 2, a man named Simeon. Jesus is less than two weeks old, and Simeon, this man who is thought to be well along in years, he's got this perspective on life that I often only hear from those who are well along in years who have experienced a lot, a lot of life, the highs and the lows. And Simeon is drawn to the temple by the Holy Spirit because he had been promised, Simeon, you will not die before you see the Lord's Messiah. And Simeon enters the temple and he sees Jesus and gets to actually hold Jesus. And then he turns to Mary. And let me read to you out of Luke what happens next. Luke 2, verse 34 says, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to call the, cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then he closes with one sentence that I can't help wondering if as she stood at the cross, entered Mary's mind, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now, we don't know much more about Simeon's life. I don't know what kind of success Simeon encountered. I don't know what kinds of failures Simeon came up against. But Simeon is a man, much like many who are sitting here right now. Simeon has lived enough life to realize that the highest of successes, well, they just don't measure up to the hope that he had in Jesus, in seeing Jesus. And Simeon was a man who, regardless of how many failures he may have had, understands that every failure in life can point us to a greater hope, the hope that we have in Christ. As I think about this church, I look around this room and I go, you know who's standing at the cross and you know who's sitting at this room? There's a very real presence of Simeon in this place. Because there are people in this room who have walked through experiences that it's only after having not just walked through the experiences, but having had years of reflecting on them, that they understand this life. For all the success you strive for, and all the failures you walk through, and all the pain, and all the blessing, there is one hope that rises above all of it. It's that we would see, and that we would experience the presence of the Messiah, of Jesus. And so as we sit here as a church, we have to acknowledge and never, ever, ever discount the presence of the insight and the hope of the Simeons in this room. There's a man right down the street named Joe Gamarano. Joe heads up the, and he actually helped get started, the food bank that we partner with as a church over at Light of the World. 
And while I was in seminary, as part of a class, I went over and uh, interviewed Joe, and I had known Joe from, they come here and they pick up the food we collect um, every couple months. And I was talking with Joe one day, and he was just walking me through the story of how this food bank came to be. And he was walking me through the highs and the lows of his life. Joe is now 92 years old. And as he talked about it, I, I just said, thank you so much for your just service, for getting this going and this partnership. It's a beautiful thing. And he said, well, I'm on to the next thing. I was like, you're 92. You're on to the next thing. What is the next thing? And he said, and, and he laid out for me at the top of this paper, his five-year plan. I said, you're 92 and you have a five-year plan? <laughs> like, I do not even know what I'm doing Wednesday. <laughs> I don't know what I'm having for lunch today. He said, well, my work with this is done. And now I have a five-year plan to just go let people know about Jesus. And I thought, wow, 92 years old. And, and at 38, actually 28, I'm 28, all right? At 28 years old, plus 10, I sit here and I can say my hope is in Jesus. But truth be told, I hope in a lot of other things if I'm being totally honest. I hope in a lot of other things working out. I hope in a lot of other people being present. But at 92 years old, and I don't know how old Simeon was, but at 92 years old, Joe says, it's all about Jesus. After a lifetime of striving and trying and succeeding and failing, it comes down to Jesus. Do we recognize the presence of the Simeons? in this room? Well, there was somebody, there was the presence of somebody else physically at the foot of the cross. The verse continues. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And I thought, oh my goodness, what must have been going through the mind of Mary? Maybe she thought of this conversation with, with a man who is generations ahead of her in life. Or maybe she reflected on all the moments with her son as he, as he was nailed to the cross. I wonder if she reflected back on a visit from the angel Gabriel when she said, me? God wants me to be part of his plan? He wants me to mother his son? Maybe she thought about having to break the news to Joseph and how uncomfortable that must have been, and all the fear that must have gone in to that conversation. Maybe she thought about escaping to Egypt in order to save their own lives. As Jesus grew, maybe she experienced the very, very real, real dynamic that parents experience when they have to let go, when they got to open their hands and say, wow, my child's doing their thing. When she was searching for Jesus at the temple and couldn't find him, the fear that must have run through her. As he grew, she watched him be rejected in his own town. As she came to see him, he said this puzzling statement. He said, my family, they said, your family's here. He said, no, my family are those who do the will of God. And what that must have felt like to Mary there's a very good, good case for, for the idea that Mary was probably 45 to 50 years old as she stood at the base of the cross. 
And as I think about those in here, the Marys in here, those that are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, I think about all the experiences that you must have walked through to land it today. Because there are people in here who with the experiences you've gone through, many of us who are younger than that, we would run from it. And Mary could have run from it. But in a very real way, at the foot of the cross, you have the insight and the hope of a Simeon. You have the experiences of a Mary. Last year in Australia, they had this ultra marathon. It was 537 miles long. This takes days and days and days to get done. And at the start of this race, at the starting line, a number of athletes showed up and they were, um, they were very young in order to make a run like this. And this guy limped toward the starting line and it turned out he was about 58 years old. A 58-year-old man. And as they looked at how he was dressed, people began to laugh. He had jeans on, he had boots. And it turned out he was a shepherd. He was a shepherd in the fields of Australia. It was his actual job. And he said, I'm here to enter the race. And people said, well, you're kidding. He said, no, I'm here to enter the race. Well, they got him a number. The race got going. And days upon days later, you know who finished first? The shepherd. This shepherd finished first. And when they got done, he didn't just finish first by a little. He finished eight hours in front of the second place person. And when people asked him, how did you do this? He said, I got to be honest. My experience in life just lends itself to something like this. It turned out he did not sleep. He just trudged along over the course of days upon days upon days. A few brief naps here and there. While, while the younger ones were sleeping, it was the experience of this one that got him through. At the foot of the cross, you have the insight and the hope of Simeon. You have the experiences of a Mary. But there's also the very real presence of someone else. Verse 26 says this, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. The disciple whom he loved, do you know who that is? Well, that's the writer of this gospel. That's John. And you can tell he's younger because when I was younger and still today, you know what I like to say? I'm the one Jesus loves. It's me. But over and over and over, John reminds us, I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. I'm the one Jesus loves. And John was considered, he was actually called, he and his brother, one of the sons of thunder. It's because John and his brother, they were fiery and they could be impetuous in their young age. And they could even come across aggressive. And yet John was this follower, devoted follower of Jesus. It was just a little misguided at times. There was a time that people came to, they didn't want to welcome Jesus. And so you know what John said? Should we call down fire on him? Jesus, should we get him? Let's get him. Jesus said, no, no, no. That's, that's not quite how this works. And I'm sure in that moment, Jesus could have thought what I would think. This one, this one's gonna write an account of my life. This one's gonna write other letters. Yeah, this one. A much younger generation 
standing there, and I couldn't help but think about the Johns that we have in this room. Full of energy, full of, of just fight and direction, and let's go. And yet, you know what God does at the foot of the cross? He brings all that together. We have Simeons in this room. We have Marys in this room. We have Johns in this room. But the Johns bring a different, they bring a different dynamic. Simeons bring that insight and that hope. The Marys bring that experience. You know what the Johns bring? Perspective. Because it's the Johns in the room that you know what they do? They face a situation unlike any, anyone else has ever faced in here. See, we cannot discount and we cannot overlook the perspective of the Johns in the room. One, one blogger recently put it this way in a blog that I read. They said, yes, the generations before us may have trudged uphill five miles both ways in the snow, but what do we do? All of our friends are Ubering uphill five miles both ways in the snow. And they're broadcasting it on Instagram and Twitter, and we're told we're supposed to do it the way the ones before us did it. But the ones we need to reach, they're in that Uber car. And they're on Instagram, and they're on Twitter. And we have to remember that they face a dynamic unlike any we've ever faced before at the age that they are. And so there's this beautiful, beautiful picture of what comes together at the foot of the cross. It's a beautiful picture. The insight and the hope of Simeon, the experience of Mary, the perspective of John. Sound familiar? It kind of sounds like a church. But what we often do in church because of our human nature is we separate it. We say, okay, all the Simeons go over here and all the Marys go over here and all the Johns go over here. And we, have, we even have ministries here that are set up that way. And you need that time. But at the foot of the cross, that all ought to fade away. That all ought to fade away. That's what I love so much about this church is while many ministries have their own thing, there are also many opportunities to engage in that time at the foot of the cross with generations outside of our own, to engage the insight and the hope of the Simeons and the experience of the Marys and the perspective of the Johns. And I think that's why Jesus says what he says next. In the midst of what he did for us, in the midst of dying on the cross, out of the sacrificial love for us, Jesus says what he says next. He looks outside his pain and with seeing his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. Do you know what Jesus says? Jesus says, you are here. You've been drawn here because you're on a relay team together. You are on a relay team here together. Jesus recognized that his own mother was going to be losing her son. And he, he looked at the disciple. He said, this is your mother. You see her as a mother. And recognizing that John, his friend and his follower, was going to lose a friend and a mentor, he looked at Mary. He said, this is your son. 
Think about that. What does a mother do? Mothers are wired to nurture, to care for, to come alongside, to raise up, to grow, to encourage. What does a son do? Sons are wired to come alongside and to help and to serve and to assist. Would you, would you look around the, the room right now? Just take a look down the row. The rows behind you, ahead of you. These are your mothers. These are your sons. These are your brothers. These are your sisters. Jesus was right. Anyone who does the will of God, he says, is his family. This is your spiritual family. At the foot of the cross, Jesus looked at all of them and he said, you belong to one another, which means something for us. See, oftentimes, you know what we like to do? We like to look at other generations and say, do it like we do it. Live life like we do. And Jesus raised, he raised their eyes above that. You know what he said? He said, we pass on how he lived, not how we live. You want to pass the baton, right? Well, you pass on how he lived, not how we live. There are many people in this church who know the story of Ron and Karen Keller. Ron and Karen Keller, 16 years ago last month, lost their son Ryan in a car accident. It was five years ago this past week that they lost an adult daughter to a car accident. But there is something so beautiful in their story. In the years since they lost their son Ryan in a car accident, you know what they did? Every single year around the time of their son's death, they invited over and they continue to invite over Ryan's friends. And I thought, wow, you think, you think they understand? A mother who lost her son and friends who lost their friend. And so they will have them over. And you know what happens? Anything generational fades away because Ron and Karen's experience and memory of their son is made more full and richer in hearing about the experiences that Ryan's friends had with him. And their memories and their experiences of their friend Ryan are made richer by hearing the stories of Ryan's parents and their experience with him. It's exactly what happens in the church. It's exactly what happened at the foot of the cross. We pass on how he lived, not how we live. And that has some incredible meaning for us as we walk forward as a church. Verse, verse 27, the last half of it says this, from that time on, this disciple took her, the mother of Jesus, into his home. I sit here and I think, what was that like? I mean, one scholar has done a lot of study and has made a very good case that uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, may well have been John's aunt, which probably made her feel even more free to say things like, put the dishes away. <laughs> Were you born in a barn? No, you weren't, because I had one in a barn. <laughs> Get off the screen. To which John said, I'm just binge-watching Stranger Things, okay? <sighs> there was probably something like that going on. But you know what I bet was really going on? Care. Care. 
care for one another. Jesus, in essence, said, you know what? You care for those who came before you, and you care for those who come along behind you. You want to know why? Because that's how he lived. In sacrificial love, he cared for the generations before him and the generations who would come along behind him. And I think about this place, and I think, oh my goodness, what an opportunity we have multiple generations, and there's a challenge. I get it. I even look around at generations, and I think, why don't they just do it like Generation X did it? And yet, at the, at the moment I think that, you know what I think? Anytime I ask people to live the way I do it or the way we do it, it opens me up to getting very critical. That's why Jesus says, nope, there's a, there's a better way. I want you to pass along the way I did it. We have older generations here that are some of the greatest servants I have ever met in my life. And it it, kind of doesn't make sense to me because their bodies have been through a lot. And I sit here and think, well, as a son, as sons, as daughters, we ought to come alongside them and help them. There are younger generations here that in a very real way are facing situations that no one in this room has ever had to face. And they're doing it all while they're still developing their adult brains. That's no offense to the youth, okay? I'm just saying biologically. Um, And maybe the best thing we can do as older generations is not say, you need to do it my way, but it's to sit down and listen and say, what's it like for you? Where do you see Jesus? But what is this experience like for you? At the same time, I love where we see it already happening. The Christmas show, if you got to come see the Christmas show, there were over 200 people that were part of that from little kids all the way up. From two to 92, they were part of that show. It's an intergenerational thing that happens here. Women to women, woman to woman, I still don't know. I should probably know after all these years. Is it plural? Is it singular? Anyhow, it is one of the most intergenerational ministries we have. But whether it's formally set up or not, we ought to be willing to step into conversations with one another and step into time listening with one another and step into caring for one another because it's in that caring that you know what gets passed on? We pass along how he lived, not how we live. It's a tremendous opportunity. And so as I close, I've got good news for every single person in here. You made the track team. You made the relay team. It's a big relay team, all right? Legs of a gazelle, bodies of cheetahs, all of us. You made the relay team, but now it's time to work on passing the baton. Let me pray, and the worship team will come up to close us. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for what happened in three verses at the foot of the cross. As you hung there, nailed to the cross, in our place, for our sake, on behalf of us. You saw to it that you would for a moment, as hard as it must have been to even utter the words, you spoke outside of your pain, and you looked at those who would remain after you would be gone, and you said, care for one another. This is your mother. This is your son. And and now, as a church, as we look around at one another, 
we see spiritual family all around us. And we see an opportunity to pass the baton onto the next generation, not of how we lived, but how you lived. Because it would be John. It would be John, informed by the insight and hope of Simeon, informed by the experience of Mary. It was John that you used. Decades after everybody else was gone, after all the disciples were gone, it was John that you would use to write your word, a word that we still read thousands of years later, a word that still has authority in our lives. So Heavenly Father, we just thank you that we get to be part of the passing of the baton on to the other generations. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.